Today on the Dominic Enyart Show, Jesus taught heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Wow, what a powerful passage. But how do we know that Jesus was right, that his words did not pass away? And how do we know that the word of God was not distorted by the word of man? We'll talk about all of that and more right here on the Dominic Enyart Show. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. I am your host, Dominic Enyart, and today, a lot in the news, got a lot in the news going on today, and I was, I was planning on talking about all that, and um, what, what's this, I got a story here, the story looks uh, kind of interesting, but no, no, I, I don't want to talk about that, I don't want to talk about the news today. I've made this point before on the show that the news is always so stale and everything in the news is so boring and stale and it's just the same old same old which is fascinating because it's the news that it's new but it always seems stale because you know and you have the media tens of thousands of people who work in the media all competing for your attention all you know updating their websites constantly adding new clips of oh who look at who said this and oh look at who did that and Uh, Just competing for your attention, all trying to intrigue you. And it's just, it's just stale. It's the same old, same old. Yet the Bible, we have the Bible, which we've had for thousands of years. And it's, it's never updated. You know, it's never given a, a fresh coat of paint. There's never a, you know, oh, the Bible second edition released. And it's always, it's always the Bible and it's, it's old. And the Bible is always so fresh and rich with just the most incredible stories that have such depth and complexity. And even though it was written thousands of years ago, the treasure, the treasures, the vast treasures of the scripture cannot be exhausted. We read in Matthew, then Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And wow, that's crazy. So good Bible teachers will always be able to bring out things old, which that makes sense, but also things new from scripture. And that is wild. The word of God cannot be exhausted. And, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm not the only one like this. But every time I sit down and read the Bible, and I read it for more than, you know, two minutes here and there, and I really get like a good breath reading, I'm always blown away at just the brilliance of the Bible. It's always shocking to me. I It seems every time I do it, I read something mind-blowingly profound. Um, and this is uh, it's something I've, I've talked about maybe before on the show, but if not, definitely with uh, a lot of the listeners out there, which I notice when I talk to secular people, they my brother has a story. He was talking to a coworker of his and his coworker couldn't figure out what to like what to eat for lunch and my brother said like he didn't want to talk about it really cuz that's kind of a 
boring thing to talk about. And my brother said, go to the mall and get a euro because, you know, we're, we're, we're all going to we're all going to die. So just go get a euro. And my brother's coworker said, wow, that is really profound. That's that's deep, man. And my brother was just like, it's it's really not deep. I'm just saying don't spend forever deciding. And he's like, no, no, it really is really is deep. And, and my brother's coworker is not saved. He's a big liberal guy. But it just kind of goes to show that when you are not a Christian and you can't contemplate the word of God, you become so starved for interesting conversation that just someone saying, go get a euro, you, you, like, you think like, oh, wow, that's so deep. But so anyways, the Bible, every time I sit down and read the Bible, I see something profound. And so my standards for what is interesting, it's it's pretty high. And so at least for me, getting euros is not uh, extremely interesting. And so we have the Bible, and the Bible is the living and breathing word of God. I feel like we don't properly appreciate how incredible that is. The Bible is living and breathing. Like, what does that even mean? That's that's crazy. And wow, you have the living word of God and it's breathing. It never gets stale. It never gets old. And compare that to the news, which is updated all the time. And it's just so dry and rank. And so today uh, we're going to take a step away from the news. And we're going to talk a little bit about the church, the Bible, Specifically, a question I've been wanting to get into for a while now, and this is a big question, so I don't know if we'll be able to, uh, you know, cover the entire topic in one show here, uh, but, you know, we can at least get the ball rolling. And the question I've got is, how did we get the Bible? And of course, we all know the Bible is the word of God, and he inspired the authors to write the Bible. Yesterday, we concluded the debate between my father and predecessor, Bob Enyart, the, uh, and the pastor of um, a church back east, pa- Pastor Cox from back east. You can listen to that broadcast series on our website, kgov.com, kgov.com. And Pastor Cox was a progressive Christian. And by the way, when you hear, hear that term progressive Christian, that's actually just fancy terminology. It, 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 it's fancy terminology for not Christian. And that's what progressive means. It means not. So progressive Christian and not Christian, those are synonymous. And uh, so, and also, by the way, if you ever have any doubt on whether someone you know is a Christian or not, if they are saved or not, always give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they are not saved. Uh, because then that's an extra opportunity you have to evangelize. And it's always better to evangelize to someone who's already saved than to not evangelize to an unbeliever. So err on the side of caution and give uh, give people warnings when you're not sure of their salvation. And now Pastor Cox, uh, he stated that the Bible is inspired by God, but that God did not write the book himself. And he was he was saying that in hopes of discrediting the Bible, and he was 
he was trying to lessen its authority uh, because he doesn't like how the Bible makes him feel. And so Pastor Cox, he was trying to discredit the Bible by saying, you know, oh, it was inspired by God, but God didn't guide the authors to write only the truth, which is absurd for numerous reasons. We won't get into that here today. You can go listen to that debate if you want to hear that again on kgov.com. But that's one way people try to discredit the Bible, one of many ways. And another, uh, which is what we'll be talking about here today, is that they try to discredit the Bible by challenging the canon of the Bible. And what does what does that mean? Uh, well, it's a bit more scholarly of an argument than the typical argument you will hear. And don't worry, we'll, we'll break it down. And so the Bible, it's important to take a look at the Bible and see what is the Bible. And the Bible is a book. That's what most people will say. The Bible is a book. And that's a good answer. It is a book. But it could be, that answer could be more accurate. A better answer would be to say that the Bible is not just a book, but it is rather a library of books. And when the biblical authors were writing, they wrote various, you know, books and poems, historical narratives, letters, essays, proverbs. They gave speeches and sermons. And all these various forms of media, you know, they were circulating left and right. And eventually some people said, hey, you know what? I I think we should compile all of these writings together into one big library. And, you know, hey, let's compile all of those together. And what should we call that? Well, let's call that the Bible. And now we have the Bible, which is a collection of all these literary works and we have the you know the genesis through revelation account which is often referred to as what's called the biblical canon and that term canon has evolved over time you know originally it was a you know a mainly christian term you'd use when talking about the bible when you said canon you were referring to the bible and you no know, i'm not talking about the canon that goes boom on pirate ships but the canon of the Bible, and it's from a Greek word, canon, canon, canon. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, canon. And it its meaning is something of like a cane or a measuring rod, and it passed into Christian usage uh, to mean you know the norm or like the rule the rule of faith the ruler of faith cain ruler and so it's kind of a a measurement so to speak of the truth and but so that's originally what the word meant and you know it meant it was a christian word primarily but the word has evolved uh, to a much you know broader uh, meaning recently you know, every now and then you have, uh, you know, there's the big fictional stories and you have like big, uh, you know, groups of fans. Uh, what would you call it? A, a fandom, I think. And you'll hear fiction fans throw out this term a lot. And so a really good example of this is probably with Star Wars fans. And when I draw this analogy, it'll it'll help us to see a little bit of the problem we have. And so in Star Wars, there are, 
you know, the main movies. And most people think of those movies as, okay, that is the story of Star Wars, those movies. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because with Star Wars, there has been a massive number of books and comics and video games and TV series and skits and fan fictions in addition to the actual movies. And this created a problem for a lot of diehard Star Wars fans because they would try and put the entire story together and tie it in all into a nice little neat storyline with a nice little bow on top. But (laughs) they couldn't because the sheer number of people who made Star Wars content made it so that there were so many plot holes and contradicting timelines in the story that it just didn't add up, especially with, you know, the rights of the story being sold and transferred. And it was just a mess. So to solve the problem, the Star Wars, uh, they had their official canon of the story. And with that term canon, they aren't uh, getting that, you know, they're getting that from the biblical term. That's where that comes from. But they aren't saying you know, oh, these stories are biblical. That's not what they're saying. They're saying these stories are officially, and I'm using air quotes there, they're officially Star Wars history. And so they take some movies and some books and they say, okay, this is official Star Wars history and some other TV shows and video games and said, okay, these things didn't actually happen in the Star Wars universe. And that helped... That helped the fans clear some things up. They're able to put together their nice timeline and they're happy with it because for the most part, it makes sense. And so with the Bible, we have a bit of a similar problem, at least according to a lot of atheists who would like to challenge the, you know, the biblical canon. And so we have all of these writings that are circulating And men had to decipher what is the word of God and what is the word of man. And man decided, you know, okay, this is uh, this is going to be in the Bible because I think it's inspired. And this is not going to be in the Bible because I don't think it's inspired. And we, you know, humanity had the task of figuring out what should be in the Bible and what should not be in the Bible, which is a lot more. It's a lot bigger of a deal than, you know, figuring out what's official Star Wars history or not, because it's the word of God that we are dealing with. And that is a lot more important and serious and, you know, crucial to the history and future of humanity to get correct than, oh, did we get this one book of Star Wars? Is that canon or is that not? That's not important. The word of God is important. And now there isn't total agreement. So right now we have our Bible, which has 66 books of the Bible, and there isn't total agreement on those 66 books. Not at all. The Jews today, right, they don't even use the New Testament at all. They don't even recognize that. The Catholics, they have their own Bible. Their Bible has 73 books, whereas our Bible has 66 books. The Mormons, you know, the Mormons, they use the Book of Mormon, which is funny. Uh, The Muslims, they use the Quran, and sometimes they use that in addition to the Old Testament. And so as Christians, we are supposed to trust the word of God. But that can be 
a tricky thing to figure out how do we decipher the word of God from the word of man. And especially because there's some ancient historical texts which are, are they are reliable and they are true, but they are not the word of God and they are not they are not inspired by God. And so that makes the whole process tricky. And you know, it's an important question. And as I was saying, atheists they will use this as an argument against Christians, usually not. Usually their arguments will be much less scholarly, but sometimes they will know this history and ask like, okay, hypothetically, let's say you're right. And let's say God, you know, he inspired some writings. How do you even know that you have the correct writings? How do you know the Bible isn't, you know, 50% inspired and 50% not inspired? And that's a, that's a good question that we have to look into and we have to struggle through it. And so that's what we're going to start doing here today. And we have to do our best with it. You know, Jesus, he taught in Matthew chapter 24 that, quote, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will pass away. And how cool is that? How cool is that from Jesus himself? When we were in Italy a few years back for our Bible tour of Rome, Pastor Bob, Pastor Bob, my father and Pastor Bob, uh, you know, he was teaching on some history about how in Rome with, you know, especially the Colosseum and, uh, you know, they, they would go out and they would kill Christians for their faith and they would persecute Christians and the Roman Empire tried to destroy Christianity. But with Rome, for all their power and all their might, they lost. They were not able to destroy Christianity. They lost, and the Roman Empire fell trying to destroy Christianity, trying to kill Christians. They fell, and they lost, and the church stands. Amen to that. And the word of God stands, whereas the Roman Empire has fallen. So amen to that. And Jesus was proven correct through the Roman Empire. His words by no means have passed away, whereas Rome has. And uh, here was a challenge actually thrown out by my father when we were discussing that in Rome. He threw out this challenge. Let's say that hypothetically— the world, the secular evil world, they successfully destroyed every Bible in existence, every single one. Well, A, first of all, that's not possible, but B, let's pretend that it is. If they were to succeed in that impossible task, we would be able to reconstruct the entire Bible in its entirety with all the media, you know, even from secular Hollywood referencing the Bible or various, you know, just Instagram bios containing scripture, you know, people memorizing the Bible, various notes and historical documents and dictionaries, which reference the, like various chapters of the Bible and the multitude of excavational digs and archeological texts, and just the sheer amount of references to the Bible from extra biblical sources, we would be able to recreate the entire Bible word for word without, like if they destroyed every single Bible in existence, we would be able to re recreate it. And that is because heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ's words will by no means pass away. So, and that, that is... <laughs> 
that's cool. I don't think you can say that about any other book. Um, but all right, we still have to deal with this um, this question. How did we get the canon of the Bible? And well, let's start in the Old Testament. We might have to break this up into two or three shows. I'm not sure, but uh, let's get started here with the Old Testament. And I'm starting with the Old Testament here intentionally. It helps us build a foundation. Jesus said in in John, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And so there's a significant connection between the two, Old and New Testament. And we'll actually use the New Testament as a reference point which will be fun as we go along. And we are allowed to do this because even if we haven't established yet that the New Testament is inspired, even if we haven't established that yet, it has certainly been established that the New New Testament is historically accurate already. So it's, it's suited for our current purposes. And that'll be one method we use as we go forward with uh, you know, figuring out the validity of the the Old Testament and that it, it, it it's canon, and as we go forward, let's remember that the Jews at Jesus' time they had the Bible, but it it was just the Old Testament uh, at the time, and for them they didn't call it the Old Testament; they just they just called it the Bible, and their Bible essentially it didn't have the New Testament. And this is something that not a lot of people realize, but their Bible ended on a cliffhanger. The entirety of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and to the cross all the way from the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, you know, the seed of the woman, he shall step on your head. Uh, The son of man from the line of David, referencing Jesus, uh, was going to come and deliver Israel. And Israel, they all read from those scriptures, which pointed forward to, you know, the Son of Man coming, Christ coming, but they did not yet have a deliverer. So they were reading scriptures that ended, it gave them a cliffhanger at the end of their scripture. And at the time, they trusted those writings, the Old Testament canon, it was stable for them. And that was their canon, and so that's what we're going to look at now. And there are a few things to consider. I see we're uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. Not not quite. We still got a bit more time, and so I want to consider some historical points. There was a first-century Jewish historian, famous Josephus. You've probably heard of him. And he gave a list of 22 books that were accepted by the Jewish church at the time. And his, his 22 all match with our current 39 books of the Old Testament. And from his writings, he seemed quite confident about the stability of the Old Testament at the time. He wrote, quote, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add nor to remove or to alter a syllable. Wow, so no one one is one total agreement. They didn't even want to change a syllable, let alone, you know, adding and removing books. They didn't even want to change a syllable. And also we have Philo of Alexandria, and he was 
born in 25 AD, and he, he talked about the Bible being divided up into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that was confirmed by Jesus in Luke 24, 44, that he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Wow, that's that's interesting, that, that, that correlation. And there are various other historical records which all reference to this division of the Old Testament being in these three sections, right? The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And, you know, we could get into some of those, but we, we won't here today. And even right now in 2022, we still typically divide up the Old Testament just like that into the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Though there is a point which is funny to me. Sometimes we divide up the prophets into two sections. We divide it up into the major prophets and the minor prophets. And, uh, you, you know, you might have heard of that distinction, but I don't know if you've heard why we divide them up between the minor and the major prophets. And there's only, there's only one reason. It's kind of a funny reason. The major prophets are longer. And that's it. That's the only reason just that they're longer. I've always found that funny because the so-called minor prophets, you know, they're, they're minor just because they're shorter. They don't take as long to read. I've always found that a little bit funny. Um, also now that I'm just going on tangents, uh, it's interesting. The books or the, the verses, the chapter and verses in the Bible, those were not written into the Bible when the authors were writing. The authors were just you know, they were writing, they weren't dividing it up into chapter and verse. And a scribe later came along and he added those in. And I'm very thankful that he did that. I don't recall his name off the top of my head because it makes, you know, searching the Bible so much easier. But with that said, there have been some divisions in the Bible that have caused a lot of confusion. And so when you're reading the Bible, it's good to remember that the these divisions between chapter and verse they are not necessarily you know inspired also the book of samuel that was you know we have first and second samuel but when that was originally written it was written as one big long like the the book of samuel it was written as one long narrative but it was later divided into two books because of uh, scroll length, actually, which is interesting. But so with Samuel and these other divisions, the divisions in the Bible aren't always inspired. And so that is interesting. Um, but so anyways, getting back on point, a good idea when trying to decipher the canon of the Old Testament is to look at the people at the time of Jesus and ask what did they think the canon of the Bible was, and you can gain some insight that way. And, you know, when you take the New Testament authors and writers, very often they cite and reference other writings, you know, like uh, the, like responding to letters. Paul responded to letters with some of his letters of his own. and But never once does the New Testament... Um, Never once does an author of the New Testament cite another writing as scripture 
if it is not in our current 39-book Old Testament, or if they're citing one of the other writers of the New Testament. Um, But let's take a moment to consider Jesus and his dissension with the religious leaders at his time. There was a lot of disagreement, a lot of disagreement between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, you know, the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said X, Y, Z, but I say unto you, A, B, C. And so Jesus was correcting the religious leaders of his time, and they would try and, you know, trick and trap him often, but they always failed. And it's interesting to look back at those disagreements, and we see no indication, none, that there was ever any debate over which books belonged in the canon. And you'd think if there was, you know, big debate, raging at the time over what books were canon and which were not canon, you'd think that those synagogue leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have taken all the books that were contained their, you know, their problem texts, so to speak, and just say, you know, oh, these aren't actually canon uh, because, you know, it's clear they weren't concerned with intellectual honesty. They were making cases from Scripture that you could divorce your wife just because she burnt your toast. And so they argued that, which is obviously untrue, obviously ridiculous. And so it's clear that they aren't, you know, intellectually honest. So you think if they could take their problem texts, their problem verses, and just say, you know, oh, those don't actually belong to Scripture— That would be the low-hanging fruit of low-hanging fruit, and that would be their option A, but they never did that. And so that's pretty compelling evidence that at the time, the canon of the Bible, of the Old Testament, it was not in question. It was widely accepted. And so that gives us a, a pretty interesting insight into that. So those are some interesting historical points, which, if nothing else, they at least give us the confidence that the Old Testament canon was stable. Uh, But I'd also like to raise some theological points. If these books, if they were inspired by God, we should see evidence within the books themselves of divine origin. And so what do I mean by this? A few things. When we read these books, we should be able to tell just on face value, you know, this could not have been written merely by a man. We should be able to tell that just from reading the books. So take the book of Job. When Job was, you know, it was the first book written, not the first first book chronologically, but in what order the books were written, Job was written first. And it's actually funny in Job, he complains, he says, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And then Job ends up being the first book written in the Bible. So, you know, Job, Job, his wish came true. But so we have the first book of the Bible and it's written. We should see divine evidence within that book itself that it was, you know, divinely inspired. And we do. I was recently talking with a listener about this. Shout out to Lily. Hi, Lily. 
But we were talking about how in the book of Job, God is bragging about his creation. And he says, who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew from who? Whose womb comes ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. And wow, what? <laughs> that is cool. God bragging about his creation. God is talking about the path of a thunderbolt. And he said, yeah, who did that? Who set, who set that up? You guys, y'all don't even have that figured out. I've got it figured out. And it's funny, God says that, and scientists are just now starting to understand some of how lightning finds its path, and they still are very confused about it, and they don't understand it, but they're just starting to, uh, you know, start to pick up hints and pieces. But that's not even kicker. The real kicker is right after that, he's bragging about his creation, and he says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? And wow, that is a powerful statement. God is referring to star clusters here, the Pleiades and the Belt of Orion, which are bound and unbound star clusters. So we take our computers nowadays in 2022, we take our computers and we look at the Pleiades and we calculate a million, a billion, 10 billion years into the future. And sure enough, the Pleiades is a bound star cluster and the Belt of Orion is an unbound star cluster. And there is no way... When the book of Job was written, that they even understood the concept of bound and unbound star clusters, yet let alone figured out which one is bound and which one is unbound. There is no way they had the technology to do that. And the only way that could be included in the book of Job is if it was divinely inspired by God himself. It is evidence of divine origin stamped into the writing itself. Absolutely mind-blowing evidence for the validity of the book of Job here. And there are a lot of other evidences of divine origin in all the books of the Old Testament, such as prophecies and other scientific facts. I know in Exodus, it talks about the, the practice of quarantining. That's pretty cool. And the Bible, by the way, the Bible gets it right. When we did this whole quarantine thing with COVID, we did it wrong. But the Bible explains the correct way to do it, which is you quarantine the sick and not the healthy. Isn't that interesting? Who would have thought? Well, the Bible would have thought thousands of years before the concept of germs was widely accepted. So that's some truly pretty mind-blowing stuff, but there's science and prophecies and things of that nature. And I am running a bit out of time here, so I'm going to try and just get through some of these a little, a little bit faster than I would like. The prophecies, one of the biggest pieces of evidence for divine authorship that we find all throughout the Old Testament is you have prophecies throughout the Old Testament which point to various historical events that happened hundreds, if not thousands of years later into the future. For example, in Isaiah 7 14, the virgin birth, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his 
his name Emmanuel. And that prophecy, that was fulfilled, that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall be born forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And that was fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. How cool is that? By the way, Bethlehem. If you ever see the word Beth in the Bible, that always means house of. So you might have Beth Haran, and that would mean the house of Haran. And so in Israel, there was Bethel, and that was the house of God. Bethel was the house of God. And Bethlehem means the house of bread, which is interesting because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was the bread of life, and that is very fascinating. Then we have the prophecy that Christ will have victory over Satan, yet Satan shall bruise his heel. And that was in Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was referring to Jesus and that was fulfilled at the cross. Jesus conquered sin and conquered death, but it bruised Jesus' heel in that Christ died. But then he, of course, had victory when he rose again. That was fulfilled at the cross. Psalm 22, foreshadowing the cross as well. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that was fulfilled at the cross. Also, historical accuracy. For example, the conquest of Canaan in Joshua and the division of land. There are just so many archaeological digs that have confirmed the historical accuracy of the books in the Old Testament. And I'm running out of time, so I'm just jumping through these quickly. But you can take the books of the Old Testament, and we know that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. And so, you know, with the canon of the Old Testament, we have two or three witnesses— more than two or three witnesses, confirming the validity of these books. You know, the people in Jesus' time, they were certainly passionate about history. Their lineage was important to them. In keeping track of their history, that was extremely important to them. That was a, you know, especially with how much they cared about their tradition. And that was just a firm part of their culture. And with their devotion to history, there was no disagreement about the canon of the Old Testament, about what they thought what the canon was. It was widely accepted by all the religious leaders, authors of the New Testament, and by Jesus himself. And also from extra-biblical sources, the historical documents such as the writings of Josephus, Then, in addition, you have the evidence in the books of the Old Testament that they were divinely inspired with information that the authors at the time could not have known without inspiration. And so the evidence that these books belong in the canon of the Bible, it really is overwhelming. And this topic, we'll have to roll this over to tomorrow's show. But we also have the theological consistency, which we'll talk about that. And, you know, we'll have to split this into at least two episodes, at least. And then historical accuracy, the archaeological finds, they affirm the Old Testament time and time again, the prophecy. There's so much. And as I said, we, we learn from 2 Corinthians 13, by two or three witnesses, a matter is established. And we have 
way more than two or three witnesses, which, you know, I know we felt kind of rushed here at the end of the show, but we got through a bunch of those and we'll get into more later. So we can be very confident in the canon of the Old Testament, which is cool. And like I said, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. That is going to do it for us here today. I want to remind you, we do five shows a week here at kgov.com. Monday is the broadcast classics with Bob and your live Tuesdays and Wednesdays with me, the Dominic and yard show. Thursdays is theology Thursday and Friday. We have real science radio with Fred Williams. If you want to help us stay on the air and keep the lights on here, you can go over to our store, make a donation, purchase a product, or perhaps you could sponsor a show. We would appreciate that so much. I will see you guys tomorrow. This is Dominic and reminding you to do right and risk the consequences.